en hartelike goeiemorgen, welkom by ons program Skrifteerlik, waar ons wekelik saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, jy woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na jy woord, en Psalm 119, 105 sê, jy woord is een lamp vir my voete en een licht vir my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraak laat, om die waarheid te vind en licht te skyn op die vraag uit die skrifte, waarmee ek en jy moendlik kan worstel nie. Krij dus gauw jou Bijbel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skrifteerlik. From your ear, to your heart, to your mouth, to your feet. Join this life on 657 AM. And so the uh, clock has moved on to six minutes after you live in a warm-hearted good morning. Boy, oh boy, did we miss you. And uh, yeah, normal programming resuming for the uh, next uh, hour or so. And what a privilege to uh, dive into the scriptures once again. Wherever you are on God's earth, a warm-hearted good morning and welcome. With me in studio, as always, on a Tuesday, faithfully, uh, we honor the Lord for your life. Uh, Rocky Stevenson, a pastor at Benoni Bible Church. Co. Za. Pastor Rocky, good morning to you. Welcome. How are you keeping on this uh, beautiful, beautiful Tuesday morning, twenty second of November? I'm doing so well, thank you very much, Vainant. What a joy it is to be here. Yeah, well, I've made a special effort to make sure the man had some coffee when he pitched up here this morning. So he's all coffeeed up and he is ready to uh, face the questions that you want to post on WhatsApp this morning. So for the next hour, we're looking at uh, questions, lifestyle questions that you might have out of God's word. And But they just say, iemand eats errands. And we love to say, doesn't it say in God's word? But where does it actually say it? Then the Word of God says, search the Scriptures daily to see if these things are so. We easily point at God's Word, but, you know, uh, there's the story of the old pastor who said, I've got a beautiful, beautiful sermon. I just need some Scripture now to go along with that uh, sermon. And sometimes we take things completely out of context. So, for the next hour or so, till 5 to 12, if you've got a question, lifestyle question, whatever question, out of God's Word. You're welcome to send that uh, through to us. 082-657-2729 Just a sideline remark uh, at the moment is when you're sending your questions, just make mention of the Scriptures that uh, you're not sure of. The Scriptures uh, referring to your question. So uh, send that through for us and uh, it'll be our privilege to dive into God's word with you this morning. Johan, ons spring weg met die vraag wat jy vir my gesteer het. Stier asjeblief vir my die gebed vir die wapenrusting asjeblief. Uh, you just had a question as you came into the studio, Rocky, about uh, God's armor and uh, would you care to just share that with us yeah, please? Sure, um, as I was coming into studio, I was. Uh, I saw Christine, and she mentioned that they had a question during their last session on the armor of God, and the question went something along the lines of, "Should we should we ever take the armor off? You know, should we keep that armor on, or what should we do with that armor?" And the the armor passage is in Ephesians chapter six, 
So Ephesians 6 from verse 10, let me read the passage to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the might of his, of his strength. Put on the full armor of God. Now that put on is actually in the continual sense. And so this is something that the Christian is to always be doing. And so there's no reference to taking the armor off and then kind of putting it on the side table. But this would be the constant state of mind of the Christian is putting on the armor. So it says put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So there's the purpose for why you to put the armor on is you stand against the schemes of the devil. And then verse 12 tells us the reason why you would stand against this. And it says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. And then the, the armor is explained in from verse 13, which says, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So standing firm is the major theme of this putting on of the armor. And then it says this from verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Also, receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And here's the point of why we are to put on this armor is verse 18. And this is often missed, even when this becomes something of a Sunday school lesson and we make these little pieces of paper where we cut out the shield and the helmet, etc. Verse 18 is the point, praying at all times, with all prayer and petition in the spirit and to this end, being on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then he says, as well as on my behalf, that words may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So the whole reason for the putting on of the armor, which is this continual sense, you never actually take the armor off in that sense as a Christian. You're at war, and we need to be reminded at times that we are at war. I said this regarding uh, the following to our congregation recently. There was I mentioned it last week on air that a missionary was shot dead in Baghdad four times in front of his family. We often seem to forget in a country where we have more peace that we're actually at war. And and if we can be lulled by the evil one into thinking that we're at peace and we put everything aside and we're lying on the beach somewhere getting a suntan, then, then we're actually forgetting the fact that we're in this world as ambassadors and we're called to have the armor on. And then the reason we have this armor on is so that we pray. We yeah. pray, and the the praying for the Christian is actually something that's to be done all the time. We're to pray without ceasing, as Thessalonians puts it. And so uh, the the I guess the short answer to that question from Christine is that, that we're never to have the armor off. We should be in the constant state just, of putting the armor on. Just tightening the belt in the early yes, hours of the morning, indeed. shifting you know, it right and... Uh, you know, yes. because a good shoulder, soldier, as they would say, uh, sleeps in his armor, ever exactly. ever ready to fight, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. And that's it. It's to be reminded of the fact that we're in a war. We're not at peacetime. While the Christian is on earth, south, or let's say east of the Garden of Eden and south of heaven, yeah. we're at war. 
That's yeah. what we are. We're a, we're a force that is at war, and we're to not be entangled mm. in civilian affairs. We're not to be busy with the things that the world is busy with. We're to be a people that are at the ready. And the Garden of Gethsemane comes to mind again when you think of Jesus leaving his disciples to pray. And what were they doing? Falling they were asleep. falling asleep. Yeah. And he says yeah. to them, pray so that you might not enter into temptation. And he comes back to them, he finds them asleep. He says, well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah, yeah. And this is what we need to realize, that we, so there's, in many respects, this armor that we put on is the spiritual state of mind that is the constant for the believer. And there are times where we kind of let some of these aspects slip. The helmet of salvation falls aside a bit, and we start to think, okay, well, maybe I'm just not saved, and doubts creep in, and we have all of this stuff go up, go wrong in our mind, yeah. etc. And And we need to, again, just fasten fasten the belt, fasten yeah. the breastplate, put on yeah. the shoes, put... You know, and be ready. Rocky, there is a notion uh, sometimes, and it's said that, that we, we invite people to become Christians so that we, we, we call it uh, tongue in cheek, the for us gospel, you know, so that Jesus can do this for us. But the truth remains, if you're joining God's army, you must be ready to fight. Uh, and uh, to, to become, uh, I'm just thinking of the days of old, you were forced to run until you fit. You were taught how to uh, assemble your weapon, how to use it. And then you were taught uh, who the enemy is and uh, and how to fight this enemy. And I'm just thinking, as you were speaking of the scripture that says, beware for Satan is walking around like a roaring lion, isn't it? So we need to be aware of, of, of the vials of the evil one as well. And therefore, we be ever ready to fight. Indeed. Right. Thank you so much uh, for that uh, question. If you want to send your question in, you can do so on 082 657 2729. Neil Hunter had sent me a uh, voice note. Neil won't be able to listen to that at the moment. We are live on air and uh, no studio controller with us. Uh, so uh, I, prob- I trust that you will forgive me for that, my brother. But uh, if you've got a question, you can just type it out and send it in. We got a question from somebody anonymous that says, I've got a question on infant baptism. Is it biblical? Uh, and can we briefly answer that? Is there a short answer on this one? Yeah, the, the, the short answer is no, that infant baptism is not biblical. What we have that is biblical in the New Testament is professing believers' baptism. So when you have come to faith in Jesus Christ and you follow him as a disciple, you do what he did. Now, the reason that this has become so confusing is that many people have adopted something of an allegorical interpretation of the scriptures and what's called replacement theology, where somebody would say the people of Israel is now the church or the church is now Israel. And with that switch has come all a whole bunch of confusion where this idea that a child can be part of the covenant family and actually receive the covenant blessings through this infant baptism and that has been switched out for infant circumcision but if you'll remember in the old testament this is where it just becomes so it's it, it's and really that's a just shaky, true for boys not for girls yeah it, it becomes such a shaky argument because yeah. then why are we infant baptizing little girls and why is it not on the eighth day why is it not done exactly the way that the scriptures would say yeah. and then our lord jesus was circumcised on the eighth day but our lord jesus went through the waters of baptism to fulfill all righteousness and our lord jesus commanded that we would do that ourselves that you make disciples 
then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That word baptizo in the New Testament as well is, um, it actually is the word immersion. That's the word, uh, immerse. And so that was the word they had for it. We call it baptize, but it means immersion. It means go completely under, like you would bury somebody completely under the, the ground. You don't just sprinkle them with a bit of dirt and then say they've been buried. So it is that you would actually immerse somebody. But even that in the New Testament, the only place that is appealed to by some regarding infant baptism, they would say somebody like, um, you know, some of the men that were baptized in their whole household was baptized oh, yes, as yeah, well. Yeah. And they say, no, they must, the the must have been infants there. Yeah. But, you know, there's times where a household doesn't have any infants. For example, yeah. you, Vainant, you've got your your daughter is old already. Yes. Not, not old, I mean, um, yeah. not too. You know, she's still young. <laughs> she's still young. So are you. But she's already yeah. out of school. You know, she's an adult. If you and your household was baptized, it would be you, your wife, and and your daughter. daughter, You know, your son and daughter who are now already out of school. They're adults already. And um, and often a household would include some of the slaves that were there or some of the servants that were in the household. And so they would have received the, the gospel and now been baptized. And so we we don't see any of this within the New Testament. Somewhere where this crept in as well is what is called baptismal regeneration. And what happened is that a false doctrine came in, and this was probably around the 300 AD, 400 AD um, time period, where this idea was that you had to be baptized to be saved. And that was the point of this. So works became involved in this, not just grace that you saved, as Ephesians says, but they said that you had to be baptized, that this was a necessary work for you to be saved. And then what happened is that some people actually, they, they would have a lot of infants that would die as at a young age. And so then the theory was, well, if the infant never got baptized, then the infant could never actually be saved because baptism became something that you had to have baptism to be saved. And so the poor parents were pushed into this predicament because of a false theology, a demonic theology that said that if my child's not being baptized, then they go to hell. And this was more or less the same time where you started to have some people being baptized for the dead. And so they would actually get baptized as a proxy for somebody else. And this was mixed even in with some of the false theology regarding purgatory, which was taken from the Apocrypha. And so you have all of these false theologies that started to weigh up regarding infant baptism. Mm. Eventually, they actually stopped baptizing professing believers altogether, and they only baptized infants, because the sooner that we get them dunked, the sooner we get them saved, because then they're part of the covenant family of God. And this whole mixed up ideology of, okay, well, now this is the covenant people of God. And you remember what happened with the people of Israel regarding this. They actually said to Jesus, we're children of Abraham. Jesus said to them, no, you're children of your father, the devil, because you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And if God wants to, he can raise up from these stones, children of Israel. If God could make us from the dust and we became men, how how much more could he do from stones? But he says to them, you're actually not of um, you're not of God. You're not of Abraham. You're children of the devil. If you're children of Abraham, by faith, you would actually accept me as your Lord. You would listen to me. And this is John's argument through the Gospel of John. And so many, the, I guess the long and short of it is that there were many different confusions 
that led to a wide acceptance of infant baptism as being biblical when actually it's never been biblical at all. There's no place in all of the scriptures where an infant was baptized. And what you see as a New Testament teaching regarding baptism was when you professed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that he was raised from the dead. That's the kind of person that becomes a disciple. As a disciple, you get baptized to follow Jesus. You say, follow I'm his now, example, yeah. and, and, and you in many, it's a wonderful picture because the one individual says, I'm part of this broader body and I'm now putting myself underneath the Lordship of the Lord Jesus. 21 after 11. If you've got a question, that was just in a nutshell. And as you can see, ultimately, now you need to go and search the scriptures, whether you agree or don't agree. Acts 17, 11, to go and see if these things are so. Huge debates around it, but uh, ultimately, uh, somebody once said, if we're arguing about it, either you're wrong or I'm wrong or we're both wrong. But God is not confused about this. So uh, search the scriptures, Acts 17, 11. You've got a question? You send it through to 082. That's Vodacom Network, 657, the frequency on which you're listening to right now, 657, then the number 2, and then 729, Radio Pulpit, Cape Pulpit's number down in the Western Cape. It makes for a very unique number, easy to remember, 082-657-2729. Send your questions in, please, no voice, voice notes. We can't listen to them right now. And a question about the Nephilim. Um, Rocky, this is an interesting one. comes from Genesis 6 and verse 1 and 2. Uh, I think you should read that for us. Uh, and the question is, was the sons of God angels uh, having intimacy with humans? Uh, or as this person p- puts it, and I think this is uh, where we need to be very careful uh, for the younger generation possibly listening to this radio broadcast. But uh, this question then says, uh, is that where the Nephilim came from? The angels of God having uh, uh, intimate relations with the humans on earth. What do we answer with regards to that? Would you care to read Genesis 6 and verse 1 and 2 and uh, give us some explanation on that? And and I think in answering this, it might even be helpful to read a bit further. So reading down to verse 8, and it says this, Now it happened, so this is from verse 1 till 8 of Genesis chapter 6. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So this is where some of the confusion comes in, in verse 2, where it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men. And then verse 3, then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men. So it says there quite clearly, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh said that the evil of man was great on the earth. He saw that the evil of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thought of the heart was only evil continually. That's probably one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. Genesis 6 verse 5. That Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth. 
and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved to his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So there are various theories regarding this passage, and I have my own as well, and I'll share some of that as well as we as we go through this and as we think through this. But what what I do believe is that this is men with men, because that's part of the context of what we see. If you go through this, you'll see in verse 1, when men, and then it says, verse 3, my spirit will not strive with man. And then you've got verse 4, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and then you've got those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. It doesn't say that this is a hybrid creature, that this is an angel mixed with man. It talks about men, men, men. Verse 5, when God says he saw that the evil of man again, and then later on verse 6, that he had made man. Then verse 7, I will blot out man from man. So, you can see that the context is not saying that there's some hybrid creature between angel and God, or they'd say angel and man, but you see God speaking about man himself. Now, the confusion comes when you see the sons of God, and and there you've got something like Job chapter 1, Job, the end of the book of Job, where you actually see that the angels are spoken of as sons of God. And so this is where I think some of the confusion comes. But the point of this passage isn't really the Nephilim. It isn't really the um, this idea of angels and men. The point is this contrast that God begins to make between the the way that man sees greatness and the way that God sees greatness. And that's where Noah comes in, because Noah finds favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us why Noah found favor. It was because of faith that he finds favor. And so you start to see this big contrast that comes up, and this contrast begins to build even throughout the rest of Genesis as well. In Genesis chapter 11, when man tries to make this make his own name great at the Tower of Babel, where he's building this big tower, he wants, he wants to make himself great. And man does this. He does this back in Genesis chapter 3 as well when he thinks, well, I can be like God. He listens to the, 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 the deceitfulness of Satan. There's something that I can do to be great, to be big. And this is where you start to see this contrast. You've got these giant men, these men of renown, these yeah. great men. Yeah. But what's up with these men? The problem is that they're far from God. Yeah. They're living their own way. And God's saying, this, uh, this doesn't please me at all. The thoughts and the intentions of man's heart is evil continually. I want to blot them out. And yet Noah finds favor by faith. And so God is gracious even though mankind is so wicked. And that's part of the point that has been made. And I think that we can get distracted into thinking, okay, well, how does this work? How does that work? Um, can this be angels, etc.? And we shouldn't be distracted from the major point, which is that God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outside appearance. And we learn that even later on, where another child of the Nephilim gets slain. Remember Goliath? You've got Goliath and you've got David and part of that story mm, even the there. The guys with the six, six fingers, uh, exactly. six toes. And as, as yeah. Samuel um, actually even comes to Jesse to yeah. choose David as king, he, he brings all of his sons who are handsome and big and tall, and God says, I'm not looking at the outside. 
I'm looking at the inside. I'm looking at the heart. And it just so happens that it's um, quite ironic that David was so incredibly handsome and ruddy and, and good-looking in many respects. Um, because you'd think that after God has said, I look at the heart, I don't look at the outside appearance, that David would be some, um, uh, I don't know, bad-looking kind of guy. <laughs> but actually, he turns out to be very handsome anyway. And there's the yeah. irony that God would still take even that. And yeah. But you've got even somebody like Saul. Remember what happened is Israel chooses Saul, who's a head well, and sh- above the shoulders of so. all the rest. Yeah. So they were looking at the outside. I'm just reminded of Isaiah 53, which I was reading just this morning, that speaks about the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah. That says he was not of outward appearance that man would like him and say, wow, that's, that's somebody beautiful, that's somebody special. It is indeed about the heart, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And so there are other places we can go to as well regarding this question. And that's like Matthew 22, verse uh, 23 to 33, where Jesus gives an answer to the Sadducees that are asking about the resurrection. And Jesus in that passage makes it very clear that angels aren't like human beings. They're not given in marriage. They're not taken in marriage. So we see that the angelic beings as well do not multiply. They yeah. don't They don't procreate. Yeah. They don't, they're not like man that makes more little babies they they were made as a created number and you'll remember that a third of heaven's angels fell with lucifer but they unable to to multiply like man does but satan has always been against the seed of man he's always set himself against even since that passage in genesis 3 verse 15 where god gives this promise to eve and says your seed will crush his head even though he bruises the heel satan has always been dead set against destroying man he's always wanted to wipe man out right. you remember what happened with cain and abel even the yeah. way that cain kills abel there satan thinks he's won but he hasn't because later seth is born to adam um, you've got another passage that comes to mind as well is Numbers 13 verse 33 where you see that the Nephilim were actually there even after Noah's flood because many people will say that what God did with the flood was to try and wipe out this half angel, half human Nephilim hybrid type, hybrid of, type of a thing. But then why do you find again the Nephilim after the flood? Yeah. Because you have that in Numbers thirteen thirty three. There, he, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, Nimrod, um, and those guys. Yeah, well. are they are part of? Well, Nim, Nimrod was now before the flood, but, oh, yeah, yeah. but after the flood, you've got again sons of Anak, and you'll remember somebody like um, Caleb who would go to the hill country even as an eighty year old. He says, "Give me the giants. I'm going to go and slay the giants," because <laughs> he believed in the Lord, and he yeah. he goes and he takes them on. And you still have a level of the remnant of the giants around during the time of Saul and David, those that were from Gath. And you remember even David later on goes to Gath with <laughs> with the sword of Goliath. Yes, you I know, remember. Not, yeah. not very smart of him there to take the sword back there to, to Gath. But you had a number of the giants that were there. And so you have, but this was, I believe, to be just human beings. But what I want to say here as well is is that, and here's where I bring a little bit of my theory in, but I think we do need to be careful with our theories because this isn't, we're not told directly in the scriptures regarding some of this, but I don't believe that we ever see that this is a hybrid angels type of mixed with human being. But what I want to say is that we, we underestimate so often mankind before the flood. We seem to think of them as some kind of Neanderthal, kind of a half monkey, kind of caveman type of a thing. Mankind was far more smart than we give them credit. They spoke one language. They didn't yet have the Tower of Babel at Genesis chapter 11. 
They spoke one language. They were one people. They were united in their thinking. They had a tremendous passing on of a wealth of knowledge because they lived almost a thousand years. Their gene pool was a lot more strong than what our gene pool now is. If you go and actually do a study in genetics, you'll see that we're de-evolving rather than, let's say, evolving like so many of the Darwinists would like us to believe. And so if you think about that, you realize that there must have been some kind of a way and, and here's where I would say is a possibility. I think that there is a possibility that there was a demonic interference mm-hmm. with mankind that caused something of a genetic anomaly when it came to these giants and the Nephilim. So that's as far as I'd be willing to go. It may be men that were impacted by demons in that way, but demons could never, ever have um, relations with a woman and procreate. Well, 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 then again, I'm just thinking of of uh, the story where where Jesus uh, speaks to the man at uh, I think it's called Gadara, uh, and there were these uh, pig, the yes. whole pig yes. herd there. Yes. But I mean, there were a legion of demons inside of this individual. Yes. I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, they bodiless spirits, yeah. and yeah. and what happened if they possesses a spirit and then yeah. uh, try and procreate? So with, there, with there the, you've got. Uh, um, what you're referring to is Matthew 8, yeah. verse 28 to 32. And that's a fascinating account as well. And I think it plays into this quite well as yeah. we think through this kind of a question. Um, there is there is mention to the demonic forces before the flood in Second Peter chapter 2, as well as in Jude chapter 1. And those are helpful to also go and have a look at as you think through this, because it would seem that there are some demonic forces that left their proper place of authority and interfered somehow with mankind. But we can't go further than what the Scriptures yeah, go. Yeah. And so if I read that passage, it says this in Second Peter 2 verse 4. It says, For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world. And so you see the context of what he's saying here about the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then it says, and he condemned Sodom and Gomorrah. And he talks about the sexual sin in particular as he works through that passage. He says, God knows how to deliver the righteous. Yeah, and he yeah. talks about how, how Noah was delivered in that type of a sense. And then in Jude chapter, well, Jude only has one chapter. It's one of the shorter books in the New Testament. But Jude says this in Jude verse 6 to verse 8, and the angels who did not keep their own dominion, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds until under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men, also by dreaming, defiled the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. And so there Jude actually makes this mention of how these angels had some form of an impact regarding sexual immorality. And so that's where I would say it's possible that these men were indwelt by demons and that these demons somewhat perverse them and that possibly there was even some kind of a genetic fiddling that took place um, underneath this kind of demonic move. Now remember as well that 
you, you think of the ark that was being constructed. If you were to see how just they've got the ark that they've rebuilt as such in America, where yeah, you can, it's a I've theme that, park yeah. that you can go and visit. That thing is huge. I mean, the amount of technology that would have had to go into Noah building that for 120 years as he's a preacher of righteousness and God delivers him from that. This civilization was incredible. The civilization before the flood happened was incredible. The only boat built for a storm. All other yes. boats head for the harbor yeah. and safety of harbors. But this was the only boat built for a storm. <laughs> Indeed. The Indeed. storm of all. Yeah. yeah. Super and, storm. And, and God preserves him. Yeah. And for almost a year on the boat with all of the animals, etc. Yeah. Yeah. But, but this is part of the contrast that God sets up. Man thinks he's great a certain way. God does something other. He looks at the heart. He looks for faith. And so I think it's altogether possible that mankind, before the flood, even started to do some genetic fiddling. Now, if you think that's impossible, think about our day. People are busy doing genetic fiddling now. They're busy. They've, they've got certain things that are fiddling with the genes of mankind yeah. at this moment. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of Ecclesiastes, the book that says there's nothing new on yes. the face of this planet. Whatever yes. has been or whatever we see now has already been. Indeed. Uh, th- th- and that's what the book of Ecclesiastes says, isn't it? Yes. So I would take a little bit of a morph of the second theory because there's really two major theories. One is saying that this was demons having intercourse with, yeah. with women. The other would be that these were men that were possessed. Oh, wow. And I would take more of that and that there was some kind of a fiddling that, that took place. Um, and, and, and we're not that different in our day. You know, if you think about the lies of even overpopulation of the world, you know, people say we're overpopulating which is rubbish. It's not true. There's so much space. And God has commanded man, go and procreate. (laughs) Go and fill the earth. Go and have dominion. Go and be the managers of this world. And today, there's some that believe that we're overpopulating. We need to actually kill off men. There's something called the Georgia Guidestones where they want to bring down the world population to something like 50, I think it was 500,000 people. And so there's this idea of just, let's just kill. Let's use our medication. Let's use these things to kill off the population of the world. And that's demonic. Yeah. And that's been something that has been part, that has been demonic even from that time. And that's where you, you mentioned the, the uh, demon-possessed man in Matthew 8. And this is fascinating. Matthew eight twenty-eight to 32, which says this. And when he came to the other side, into the region of the, the Gadareans, two men who were demon-possessed met him. And they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And listen to what they're saying there. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now Jude and Peter says that there are certain demons that are already chained up in gloomy darkness awaiting judgment. So these demons, they're nervous that Jesus has come to torment them before the set date. And then what do they do immediately after this? They beg him. It says this, now when they, uh, when they, they, there was a herd of swine feeding at a distance from them, and the demons began to plead with him, saying, these are demons begging Jesus, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. They're so nervous that Jesus is going to chain them up like those other demons that had been chained up before Noah's flood. And so there's a sense where you get some of the the broader clue as to what was happening um, in regard to this. And Jesus said to them, go. And coming out, they went into the swine. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Now, as you think about that, that's just another side note that's quite interesting, is that the pigs were suicidal when they received the demons inside of them. 
Yeah. And yet this man was able to have something like a legion, possibly up to a thousand demons in him. That's wow. how wicked mankind is. That wicked mankind actually is able to receive demons and they don't even have the willpower to get rid of the demons by jumping off a cliff in the sense of yeah. like what you see with the pigs. And that's where you see that demonic forces cause inside of human beings even this destruction. Satan always comes to kill, to steal, destroy. That's what he does. And that's what, these, yeah. that's what I believe these demons did even before the flood is that they were set on the destruction of mankind. And so maybe some kind of a fiddling with the genetics, etc., to bring about this giant race or whatever. But we also see that after the flood. And so, um, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just acutely aware of, of uh, John 4, near the, where the temptation of Jesus, where Satan himself, a, cre- a creation of God himself, willing to tempt the Son of God and say, uh, to bow down, to, to do all these things. And, and if he is willing to do that with the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what, what chance do you and I stand? Uh, who is that moment that was concerned? Back to the armor of God. We need that. Thank you so much. Rocky, time is just absolutely flying. Uh, Ikasa says we must uh, play some music as well. I get Willie Ubar up at the right table. Mira Mira says Jesus. That's ultimately. Uh, you know, our aim so that uh, we can see the reflection of our Lord and Savior Jesus in our life. If you've got a question, 0826572729. Just got a one about uh, cremation again. We've done cremation on this radio station. And Verassing teen oor begrafnis dan uh, Maar baie dankie dak vir die vraag 0826572729 Ja, 657 AM is where you tune to Baie dankie En ons bied om twee talig aan Engels en Afrikaans Die Iwe Weinand Rousseau En dan uh, Pastor Rocky Stevenson Benoni Bible Church If you want to send him an email afterwards You can do so at uh, Pastor uh, just pastor at Benoni Bible Church. Spooky Maddox says, Goeiedag, wat is die naam van die program wat nou uitgesaai word? Die naam van die program is skriftierlik, Spooky. Baie, baie dankie. En jy wil graag na die podcast gaan kyk. Baie welkom. Al die programme is daar so. En verochendsend sal boord so kwart oor twaalse kant ook op te wees. Dan kan jy weer na hom gaan kyk. With the time left to our disposal, Rocky, a question on being reborn. There is a notion nowadays to say, well, you know, I haven't got a date uh, ever since I can remember. Um, looking at the Word of God, you almost get the same type of thing with Timothy that's talking about his grandma Eunice that was a godly woman, a God-fearing woman. And there's a claim nowadays that people say, no, but I've, I've grown up ever since I can remember. I've been a, a, a Christian. Or people say, well, I've decided to give my life to God. Now, with that being said, and going to John 3 and verse 3, Jesus says in John 3, I, I say to you, I tell you the truth, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, is there a difference between the way that Paul was converted 
And do we understand how Timothy was converted? Did Is there any indication in Scripture that he somewhere, somehow made a decision, even though he can't remember the date, the hour, the time, the minute? Uh, does the Bible give us any indication? And what about people that says, I have given my life to God, when Ephesians 2 and verse 8 and 9 says, but it's a work of God. How do we understand that? Yeah, it, it, there is actually indication that Timothy made the good confession. And so um, Romans chapter 10 talks about that you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And there is indication through, I think it's in Second Timothy, where it talks about with whom you made the good confession. And, and Timothy would have confessed Jesus as Lord. It would seem that Timothy grew up in a godly home and that his grandmother and his mother were godly people. He had heard the scriptures from young, which is part of what we are to do as godly parents. You know, um, even back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we are to go by the way, teaching our children. Whether we sit stanley, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, we are to teach the scriptures to yeah. our children. Right. Ephesians 6 talks about the way that children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Yeah. And so, and this is right. And so as Christians and as Christian parents, we have the job of discipling our children, even pre their salvation. We disciple them in the scriptures, trusting in the Lord, in his sovereignty to save whom he wishes to save. But they are to make the confession. Even as I pray with my own children at Bible time at night, I'll pray for them and I'll say, Lord, would you please help Levi and Simeon to come to know you at a young age? Yeah. Help them to realize that they are sinners, that they need a savior and that Jesus is the savior and that Jesus now becomes their savior. And that's an important kind of a process that, that you'll see even in a simple prayer like that, because it's one thing to know that Jesus is the savior. It's another thing to actually be known by Jesus and to have an intimate walk with Jesus and to have the Jesus of the scriptures be your savior. You remember that James talks about this in the book of James, where somebody says, I have faith, but I don't have any works. And so the demons even have that kind of a faith. Demons will know that Jesus is Lord, yeah. but not actually have Jesus as Lord. And there's an important distinction. Somebody can grow up in a Christian home and not be a Christian, even though they speak Christianese, even though they've learned a lot of Bible verses, even though they may have walked down an aisle. And this is the, a, a very severe deception. It's that which is spoken of in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says that many on that day will come before me saying, Lord, Lord. They actually know him even by the name Lord. Yeah. And they say, we did many mighty works in your name. You know, we were born in a Christian home in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We healed the sick in your name. We did many mighty deeds in your name. And he says to them, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why would he say that? It's because those individuals believed that they were saved based on their works, on their goodness. It's the, a Cain and Abel all exactly. over again. A Christian is only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, and to the glory of God alone. That's how you are saved. You come to this point of absolute repentance, and repentance is not just turning away from sin. It's also turning away from dead works. It's turning away from that which you think that you're going to get saved by doing or thinking that somehow you're better than somebody else. Yeah. And this is part of the problem where somebody has a self-righteousness. Now, you have people that are in licentiousness, 
That's like an absolute sinful behavior like the prostitute, etc. But you also have those that are inside of legalism, and that's the opposite extreme. And it's just as, if not more than, dangerous. Jesus even said this to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were saying, oh, but they, they all righteous, etc. And Jesus says, I've come for the sick. You guys think you're healthy. The fact is that the Pharisees were the most unhealthy because they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And I think that there's many people today that have that kind of a brand of Christianity, which is is not Christian at all, where they've never realized in their own heart that they are sinners before holy God, that they when they stand before God, their righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God, and that they need a Savior. They need the Lord Jesus Christ. Time has run out on us, but what about those then that says, but I have given my life to God? Whereas you've just made mention, it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. Indeed. Is it the God that works in us, brings us to that point of brokenness that you cry out in desperation? I've seen people run to the fore for altar call, which, by the way, I have never seen in Scripture, altar call, mm. uh, except for the day that Peter preached and 3,000 came to, to know the Lord Jesus. You see people run to the fore with a huge smile on their face and blah, mm. blah, blah. But if you examine the fruit... Afterwards, then there are people who say, but who are you to judge and and examine the fruit of them? Check your own out. And if if people are so nervous about other people judging them, what are they going to feel like when they stand before Jesus? Who Jesus sees exactly, he sees the thoughts and the intentions of the heart of man. And, you know, that's, that's something that is a tremendously convicting thought. You're going to stand before him one day. That's appointed one day for man to die. And then comes judgment. You're going to give an account before your maker. And he's going to hold you accountable. And there's no such thing as fake Christianity before Jesus one day. And and I think that a person knows in their own heart, have they truly turned to Jesus in repentance? Repentance over their their false deeds and repentance over their sin. And has Jesus been, have they turned to him going, he's the only way that I'm going to live? Just a simple look to Jesus and you'll live. All right. And the 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 statement that you made about a confession, Timothy's confession. So you have to somewhere in your life say that I realize that without Christ I'm lost. Even though I've grown up in a Christian home, you have to make that confession of faith, isn't it? Yeah, so... Well, um, that, that passage, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12, where it says, Fight the good fa- fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So Timothy, make, uh, Paul makes this point to Timothy. Yeah. You made this good confession. Jesus made the good confession about the truth of of who he is, that he indeed is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus made that good confession before Pontius Pilate, which led towards Jesus' death. Timothy, you hold firm to this confession that you made about Jesus as Lord. And according to the scriptures then, by our fruit we will be known whether we are true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Right, time has caught up with us. Rocky, can you believe it? Program done and dusted. Somebody wants to take it up with you, be in touch with you. Where do they get hold of Rocky Stevenson? Pastor at BenoniBibleChurch.co.za 
Pastor at Benoni Bible Church. I think it's Emma that says here, "Ons ontvang salvation, reding, wedergeboorte, gratis." But it's by grace and grace alone. Can't agree with you more. Uh, thank you so much. And bye, thank you for all the vragen that you've sent in. Come on, all the deelgenemen. Tot in net Friday morning, Sirius vanaf die kapuit morgen in donderdag. Friday goes us weer terug achter die microfoon hier by Radio Council. And thank you so much for listening to Scriptural this morning. It's good to listen to Pastor Rocky, Weinand Rousseau, and Radio Pulpit, your pastor, minister, whoever. But now the responsibility lies with you to go and search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Huge responsibility. Whether you agree or don't agree, go and search the Scriptures. Bye, thank you for all the vragen that have Rocky, we're playing uh, Traveling Mercies over you as you go back uh, to Maxine and uh, your beloved boys, Levi and Simeon. And thank you so much for this morning. Indeed, the privilege to be in studio with well, you. Thank you, Vainant. Right, uh, keep well. God bless. Don't forget, 12 o'clock, latest news, playing out with Jan Curtin. Irene wordt genoemd op vast. Tot de volgende keer, liefde groeten en shalom.